0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we just again thank you for this opportunity to gather together. And as we open your word, we thank you that it is, it is powerful, Lord God. And we just ask that it would fall on good soil, that it would change us, that it would move us to a response through the power of the Holy Spirit towards you. And so, Lord God, again, as, as we, we gather, it's all about you. And as we sung this morning, just amazing words that we can articulate with our mouths about how great you are, how good you are, how gracious, how merciful you are, that you've saved us, that you've brought us out of darkness and into your wondrous light. And Father, I thank you for that. And so, Lord, as we uh, gather around your word this morning, I pray that it would... Go forth in power, that, Lord God, that you would be lifted high, that we would be, um, yeah, just humbled before you in your goodness and your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Again, it's always a privilege and an honor to be able to share with you this morning. I'm going to start with a question. How often do you actually think about being saved? Those that have come into a relationship with Jesus, how often do you actually comprehend that? How often do you, do you allow yourself to, to really think about the amazing miracle that that is? Does it impact you? Does it, does it move you towards thanks and towards worship? Do you know that God is pursuing you? Do you know that he was in the background, that he's working and orchestrating things behind the scenes? And for me, I know somebody that, uh, for myself, I was raised in a Christian home. And when I hear that, it can sometimes just, Just sadly, I, I have to admit that it can sometimes just roll off my shoulders, that, it, that it's lost its its power and authority. And, and as I was going through the, the Scripture this morning, I, I was reminded of that it's, it's not just this casual event, is it? That never in a million years should, should I or, or others that know Jesus take that as a casual comment. That there is this, this divine strategy in wooing you and I to a relationship with the Father. And this morning, we are going to take a look at a man who was more than just wooed by the power of Jesus, that Jesus steps into his world in a dramatic way and completely changes the direction of his life. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the idea of that we are saved for something and for something. But first, as many of you know, I'm a teacher and I couldn't help but, but we're going to kind of go down, I don't know if sort of memory lane is the right word, but, but I wanted to bring us up to where we, our main scripture in, in Acts chapter 9 is. Andy shared last week, about in the end of Luke, Jesus meeting his disciples but then eventually going to heaven. You see, what happens next is if we follow in the book of Acts is Jesus talks to the believers about waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. What happens is they are meeting in an upper room, waiting for what Jesus has, has said is going to happen. If you read in the book of Acts, these, then eventually, right, the, the Holy Spirit ascends on them. These, these tongues of fire appear and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they start uttering in these tongues and, and the people that had gathered around that building and that, that, that building in a way, they, they start to question what's happening as you read in Acts. And then further down in the book of Acts, Peter actually addresses the crowd and he says, no, 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 ladies and gentlemen, this is actually what the prophet Joel testified to that the spirit would ascend and fall on all people, on all flesh is how Joel mentions it. And, and as the Spirit um, moves through the people, they, they begin to gather together. They devote themselves to what the apostles, the apostles are teaching, to, to fellowship, to breaking bread. And many wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit happen. Yet as we've heard over the last number of weeks, the religious leaders of that time did not like what was happening. And as we move into chapter 7 of Acts... Stephen actually stands up and, and talks about this. He talks about how, how Jesus was the person that we were waiting for. And sadly, what happens is Stephen is actually martyred for his faith. And sometimes during that, that, that disposition where Stephen is talking, we can, we can miss this one line here. And there's this, this man named Saul who's, who's standing there and is approving of what has happened to Stephen. Stephen. And so we have this, this person named Saul. And, and if you're familiar with the story, later on in his life, he turns to Paul. But we're going to focus on, on him as Saul for the next little while. So, so why was this man named Saul killing Christians? Why was he, why was he saying that this was something that, that he was encouraging to happen? If we go back again into the history of Israel... If we go back to the Old Testament, Israel was often warned by prophets that they needed to stay in line with what God had called them, that he had separated them from the cultures and the people that were around them. But over time, what happens is they allow the foreign gods, they allow this, this, these ideas from the people around them to infiltrate their thinking. And sadly, even through the prophets and through these people warning them and and encouraging them back to a relationship with God, a a God-first relationship, they begin to fall away. And as we see through history, other nations uh, uh, begin to separate the tribes of Israel. And so then again, now if we fast forward back into the time of Jesus... Jesus comes and he is saying to the people that he is the Messiah that that they've been waiting for. Yet as we've gone over the last number of weeks, the people of that time, many of them missed it. And for Saul in that moment, if, if you if you take the historical context, he was not obviously impressed with what Jesus was doing. He didn't believe that, that he was the Messiah that, that the Israelites, the, the Jewish people had been waiting for. That he would, have, he would have thought that Jesus being the Messiah was absurd and, and, and not predicted, as it said in the Scripture. That as, as we went over a few weeks ago, that Jesus, right, what happens is he's, he's crucified, And in many people's mind, as Jesus lay on the cross and dies, he can't be that person that we've been waiting for. It can't be, Jesus can't be the person that the scriptures have been talking about. Yet we have this group of people that have encountered Jesus in a real way and they're reclaiming that he was and he is. Now Saul would have been opposed to everything that the apostles were doing. He saw it as blasphemous. He, he saw it as potentially dangerous, potentially, potentially the, the, the Jewish people going back to the ways of their forefathers, falling away from what God had called them to. That, that this, this person of Jesus wasn't the person that they were waiting for. So he goes to great lengths as we see, and we just, as I've just articulated, he actually goes in, in a violent, violent way. Silencing people. Who is this? Who is this man, Saul? Let's take a look at, at, at some of his background. And it, it, I think it helps paint a picture of where we're going to go this morning. Saul was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen who grew up in Tarsus. If we we looked at a modern-day map, that would be in modern-day Turkey. And what's interesting about the city of Tarsus is it was actually well-known for its university. It would have been a place where people would have sought to go to get an education so Paul grows up in a city that, that really focused on education. Yet it was unusual that he was a Jew and also a Roman citizen. And there's lots of information out there, but, but obviously he gained that from his family. He gained that citizenship, and that citizenship actually would have benefited him. And if you read further in other scriptures, it actually shows the benefit of being a Roman citizen, that that he would have got a fair trial, as we know if you know his story later on in his life. So as Paul grew up, or Saul at that particular point, as he grew up, his father, his family raised him in the Jewish ways he would have known the law backwards and forwards, front to back. And any of you that have young kids, I have a six-year-old right now, but at six years old, he would have memorized, memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament. It's remarkable. As he continued on through his life, He would have then, at the age of 13 years old, they would have given him this term as a son of the law. He would have followed everything that the law talked about in the scriptures. He would have even... As I looked through the research and looked through what it would have, would have looked like, at, even as he woke up, he would have wore symbols on his forehead and on his arm. The law's cube-like structures on his forehead and his arm as it talks about an exodus to show that he was serious about the law and the law of God. It was, it was more than, than just kind of a, a side project for him. It was his whole life to know the ways of God through the Old Testament. Then at the age of 14, he would have then gone to Jerusalem. He would have continued his studies to become a rabbi. To years of questioning and debating with the top scholars of the Jewish faith of that time. And the scripture talks about him being under Gamaliel, and, and if I put that in a kind of modern context, that would be like if you take your profession and you get to be under the best of the best, that person that has the most letters behind their name in their field, that have, have done all the research, that know the most, they're the, they're the person that everybody seeks to go and learn about this particular thing. Paul summarizes this in Philippians 3 5, and he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. You see, Paul was obsessed with following the ways of the Pharisees. And and I find it sobering when we read those details, how decades of history, tradition, and education can can sometimes fix our beliefs. It can be a part of our, our identity, but... Is that really what Jesus wants? Is that, is that actually the, the way that Jesus wants? And I believe as we go through the scripture, we're going to see how Jesus encounters Saul in an, a, an amazing way. And this is going to be our primary text for this morning. You can turn with me to Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bibles with you. And I believe it'll also be behind me. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And this morning, there's parts of Scripture where I'm going to highlight some words. That, that part about breathing, it's, it's actually, if you, if you look at it, it's actually breathing in. Paul is breathing in this hatred, this despise to arrest these Christians. He believes that they're heretics, that he, he's heard that there's a group of Christians in Damascus and he's going to go on that journey to disrupt what's happening. It's, it's about a 6 days journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. So this isn't this, this short, like we, you know, many of us, if we've traveled in the world, things take a little bit longer, don't they? A six-day journey, whether by horse or, or walking to Damascus. And what I love about this as well is Paul actually talks about this encounter in a quite a few spots in Scripture, in Acts 22 and Acts 26 as well. He gives insight to this authority that he's been given by the religious leaders of that time, the Sanhedrin. And in Acts 26:9, he says, "I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus of Nazareth." Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. The Sanhedrin was, was a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. They, they governed religious matters, yet they obviously were still under Roman rule, but they had the authority actually to give counsel to all the synagogues outside of Jerusalem. So even outside Israel's borders, the Sanhedrin had authority in these synagogues. So, it was not enough for Paul just to persecute the the Christians in Jerusalem. He was now under the authority of the Sanhedrin going to these other synagogues. I hope it's starting to hit home that he's completely fixed, that his beliefs and what his mission was, that nothing could convince him otherwise. There was no amount of arguing. There was was no amount of alternate teaching or persuasion that could capture his heart or mind. Do you know what he needed? He needed an encounter with Jesus himself. Let's read about that encounter. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but, not, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So, he led, so they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple... At Damascus named Ananias the Lord said to him in a vision Ananias he said Here I am Lord and the Lord said rise and go to the street called straight and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold he is praying and he has a vision uh, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight But Ananias answered Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother, brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wow. The word, there's so many things in that part that stand out, but the, the one that I love so much is, is immediately Saul is proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. I hope that the last on my watch, 20 minutes, as it says, hasn't gone through one ear and out the other. This person who was persecuting the Jews, was killing Jews, now is immediately done a 180 and is proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. Because he's encountered Jesus. That should be exciting, friends. That somebody that was going the absolute opposite direction is now following Jesus and proclaiming him as the son. You see, his belief system and purpose and the way he lived his life for decades was immediately changed because of an encounter with Jesus. You see, when we see Jesus for who he is and understand what we've been saved from, amazing things happen. When, when we catch sight of who he is, we are, comp- we are compelled to think and live differently, aren't we? We understand that we were saved by him, but we, friends, are saved for something. And I love how Paul, again, just talks about this in his own words. He says what Jesus has done for him. That we are saved from something and for something, friends. Friends. Paul, speaking of this in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16, says this. He says, I thank him who gives me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithfully, appointing me to his service. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecuted, and insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prize example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. I don't know about you, but that word patience hits home with me. How patient God is with me. How often I can make mistakes. How I can do things my own way. But he's patient with me. He's been patient with me. He always will be patient with me. He will love me. That's such a sobering thing to just think about. Another word I find hits home is formally. No matter how far gone you think you may be, he has the power to change. Even when, as many of us know, we couldn't change ourselves, this is good news. Dan Wilt summarized it this way. The Apostle Paul experienced a profound disturbance in his own life. While he didn't experience a pandemic, he did go through a life-altering personality, chasmoclitic experience in which he had the opportunity to lose one way of being human to gain another way of being. It was a watershed moment in his life and how he responded to that interruption has led to some of the greatest gains in human history. A watershed moment is an event marking unique or important historical change, of course, because he encountered Jesus. As we've gone through, as I've gone through, here are some of my final thoughts for this morning. Paul was not seeking. He was actually opposed to the things Jesus was doing. He wasn't just on the run from God. He was opposing God and God still intervened on his life. Do you know that there is a God that loves you and that is for you and that is pursuing you? His radical conversion changed the course of his life completely. In other words, if we if we look at the New Testament, he was born again. Do you know your salvation is a straight up miracle? It's a miracle that you and I, that, that profess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, were born again. Do you know that it's a miracle that you are here right now in this seat? Maybe some of you are, are seeking. Maybe, maybe even some of you were dragged here. But do you know that God was strategizing and moving on behalf throughout the centuries and the millennia before you were even born to make sure that you came into the world at the right place and the right time to encounter him? He's been moving on your behalf since the beginning of time. All the while Satan is trying to do the opposite. He's trying to war against that plan and trying to steal our allegiance away. Some have used the analogy like a chessboard where Jesus, the devil, but obviously we know that Jesus wins it all. He saved you. He wants a relationship with you. And this isn't a quick job. He's maneuvering again. I can't I drive this home and maybe repeating myself, but he's been maneuvering circumstances over time so that you would hear the beckoning of the Holy Spirit and want to respond to the voice of God and receive him as Lord and as your Savior. John Piper says, absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purpose, God sees to it that it happens. And I want to end with how we started with these last points. After our time together this morning, my prayer is that when you hear the words, you are saved, that it doesn't roll off your shoulders like it's not a big deal. And if you don't know Jesus, you too can believe in him and have eternal life.